Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome. Uh, Welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is uh, Professor Elizabeth Robinson, and I'm director of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Uh, Welcome to the audience and welcome to our speakers who I will introduce you to. Uh, This event um, is between the Honourable Catherine McKenna, who's in conversation with the Right Honourable Chris Skidmore, MP. And they are going to talk today and have a conversation about how to carry forward and implement the findings of the United Nations Secretary General's high-level expert group on net zero commitments of non-state entities, um, which was published in November 2022. And the group's report set out a roadmap to prevent net zero from being undermined by false claims, ambiguity, and greenwash. This is an LSE public event in partnership with the Grantham Research Institute. And it's also part of the Institute's 15th anniversary celebrations. So I just want to uh, talk you through the format. It's pretty straightforward, but um, it's going to be to start with, we'll have the 45 minute conversation between Catherine McKenna and Chris Skidmore, and that'll be followed by a Q&A with the audience. So I encourage you to post your questions and then um, most likely we won't be able to get through all of them, but we'll get through as many as possible. Please post your questions to the Q&A channel and not through the chat. Uh, This event is being recorded and it will be available as an audio podcast, um, hopefully, if we don't have any technical problems, um, made made available to the public after the event, which would be for free and unrestricted download from the LSE website. So before before I I let Chris and um, Catherine start their conversation, let me just give you a very brief introduction to the two of them. The Honourable Catherine McKenna was uh, appointed as chair of the high-level expert group on net zero commitments of non-state entities by the United Nations Secretary General in March of 2022. Uh, She was Canada's Minister for Environment and Climate Change between 2015 and 2019, and Minister of Infrastructure and Communities between 2019 and 2021. Possibly most important, or possibly not, but certainly particularly um, nice for us is that Catherine's also an alumnus of the LSE. So welcome, indeed, welcome so much um, to this conversation. Uh, Chris Skidmore uh, is the Conservative Member of Parliament for Kingswood. For those of you who don't know where that is, that's close to Bristol. Tell me if I've got it wrong, but I don't think I have. (laughs) Yeah, good. He was the UK's former Energy and Clean Growth Minister attending the Cabinet, and he signed the UK's net zero commitment into law in June 2019, which was, for those of us in the UK in particular, a really big event. Um, In September 2022, Chris was appointed chair of the Net Zero Review, which is an independent review into the delivery of the UK net zero climate commitments. And the report of the review, Mission Zero, was published just a couple of months ago in January 2023. So um, thank you so much for giving up your time, Chris and Catherine, for this conversation. I'm going to step back, mute myself, turn my camera off. And um, with the audience, we're going to listen to this conversation for about the next 45 minutes before um, we start with a Q&A. So thank you so much. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Elizabeth. And um, Catherine, it's uh, great to see you again. I think uh, we first spoke when we were uh, both energy and climate uh, ministers back in 2019. And I remember 
having taken over from sort of Claire O'Neill, uh, you and Claire had done a you know, huge amount of work on the Powering Pass uh, Coal Alliance, and uh, you were really supportive. I remember having our first conversation, our first bilateral, uh, and I was delighted when you sort of said, very happy to support the UK bid for, for COP26. And I think that was the first chance we had to have a, a, a conversation. Um, but I think we find ourselves in quite similar scenarios now. You know, we're no longer uh, holding ministerial office, um, but we've both had the experience of taking forwards uh, reports uh, recently. I've obviously published the, the Mission Zero Net Zero Review, but you've obviously published uh, Integrity uh, Matters uh, for the UN. Uh, and I just wondered uh, whether you might be able to sort of say why you've come to, to London this week and uh, what you're now doing uh, with the report going forwards. Uh, well, that's great. And uh, really great to be joining you, Chris. And of course, uh, as uh, LSE is my alma mater, lovely to, to be here. Uh, so thanks to Elizabeth, but also my good friend, Nick Stern, uh, who I think just got back from London, uh, just got back from India. So that's why he's not here. Um, well, other than trying to get to the Parliament Hill Lido and go swimming, because I do a lot of swimming, um, I'm here for a number of reasons. Uh, of course, uh, you know, doing something with LSE, but I was, uh, the FT had a climate live event um, and uh, the report focused on non-state actors. So it, business, financial institutions, as well as cities and regions. So talking to business people about what the report says and being clear that there are clear standards and criteria and you can measure uh, climate action in particular net zero um, is a priority. So doing some meetings around that, I did see Claire O'Neill. So uh, we started Powering Pascal many moons ago. Um, and I, I met my friend Bob, who I went to LSC with, and we were talking about Cool Britannia. That's how old I am, Cool Britannia New Labour. That's when I, uh, I studied at LSC. And your report, I, I found, I, I mean, I read it during the, uh, I think it sort of came out just around COP27, didn't it? So it was at the point when we were doing the net, the Mission Zero consultation phase. Uh, and I was really sort of struck by, you know, the work you'd done in the report around, you know, providing a, a, an accurate concept of net zero, because I think too often uh, we're at risk of seeing sort of net zero getting diluted, seeing, you know, certain oil and gas companies making net zero commitments saying, yeah, they're a net zero company. But you've now set out, I think, a really sort of acceptable definition of what net zero should be and how companies and organizations should set their net zero trajectories. I don't know if you wanted to sort of, you know, by way of introduction to our, our discussion around greenwashing, you know, give a sense of what you now see as being properly true net zero. Well, I mean, so when I was asked by the Secretary General to do this report, um, I thought, okay, we need to be practical. I'm a very practical person. And I think we need to be also very clear because business thrives on clarity. Um, and when it's not clear, it's one hard for business who the good businesses who want to do things on climate, but it also makes it easier for folks who want to say they're net zero and actually are not doing the work. Um, so there's only 10 recommendations. So if you want to read the report, it's actually written in pretty clear English. One of the biggest challenges, I think, for those of us who work on climate is we use all this jargon and acronyms and words that regular people don't understand. So essentially, I mean, first of all, if you take it at the highest level, because sometimes say, well, it's really hard to know what to do. You know what we need to do on climate? We need emissions go down drastically now, not 2050, but right now. And we need to scale investment from dirty to clean uh, as quickly as possible right now too. And you can measure those. Um, 
And so what we said is, okay, this is what you have to do. So if you're going to be saying you're net zero, putting up your hands, volunteering, saying I'm a leader, um, you need to be uh, one, have a target. I will have targets, have a long-term target, but as well as short-term targets that are 1.5 degree aligned. Uh, you need to uh, have a transition plan. Um, so you need to show what are you going to do right now? Um, and then you need to uh, disclose uh, in a transparent way and be accountable for what you're doing. And, and we need to have comparable data. I mean, we need to see, okay, what's your baseline emissions? Are your emissions going up or down? We need them to be going down. Where are you spending your money? Also, you need to align executive compensation because we know, obviously, Environment Minister Chris, you know uh, as well as I do. You, you know, it's great to be in that portfolio, but you need everyone around the table to be to be supporting you, whether it's transportation uh, or especially finance. Basically, everyone, and it's the same in a business. So you need uh, your uh, CEO, but as well as your your leadership to really be all in. And one of the ways you do that is is, is ensuring that executive compensation uh, compensation is aligned with your goals. What can you not do? So I also thought, and I should say I, there was a group of 15 other, there were 15 other members from around the world, very diverse groups. So it included uh, the former governor of the Bank of China. It included um, environmentalists, uh, scientists, uh, business leaders, former regulators, whole range of folks um, from around the world, very, very diverse. And I'm very happy it was gender balanced. That was a condition of mine. Um, and so they came with very different perspectives, but all very practical. But we decided we needed to call it greenwashing because sometimes you can kind of say you need to do this and then people aren't, you know, are doing other things that are not consistent. We felt like the secretary general is very clear, no more greenwashing. So we were just going to deal with the real, you know, the elephants in the room. Number one, you cannot invest in new fossil fuel infrastructure. You cannot put your hand up and say, I am a climate leader while you're investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure. There's already a lot of investments, fossil fuels, obviously we need to get out of them, but you can't be investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure. That's what the International Energy Agency has said. That's what the science said, says. Two, you cannot get to net zero by buying cheap credits uh, offsets. Um, you need to do the work yourself across your value chain. So in climate, language, we call it scope three emissions, but you have to actually do the work. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't use credits beyond your net zero pathway. And this sounds pretty nerdy, but it's important. You actually have to reduce your emissions. Um, and that's good because you get innovation. If you're just buying credits, you're not going to go say, oh, okay, how can I innovate in this space? Take EasyJet. EasyJet used to be doing credits. They said they would not do credits on their net zero pathway. That's great because if they can innovate, if they can figure out low uh, carbon fuels, if they can figure out, you know, uh, lighter planes, if they can figure out, you know, biofuels, like all these things, that will make a huge difference to everyone. They can scale. Um, three, you cannot lobby against positive climate action. And I know this very well because people would come into my office and, you know, they'd say, yeah, yeah, that's great. Then they go to finance and say, don't do any of that. So that is over, but we had a nuance, which I think is important. We also said that you cannot be a, for example, um, a management consulting firm uh, who's providing advice. You can't be an accounting firm. You can't be um, a marketing firm working with folks that are doing lobbying against climate action. And so I think it's really important because we need everyone to be working in a positive way um, and then in the end, so our last recommendation is we need to regulate. Governments need to regulate because ultimately 
you need to have accountability. And the way you do that, there's also free riding. Um, the, there are folks who do not even have net zero targets, a lot of privately held companies. So it's really important that you get to the space where you say, okay, everyone has to have a net zero plan. They need to have a transition plan and they need to disclose transparently. So that's essentially it. And of course, like, you know, it sounds like a bit Debbie Downer. One, it's just supposed to provide some discipline to everyone. Like, you know what? You want to say this? This is what you need to do. But it's also this opportunity for an ambition loop. And we talk about that where we need businesses to be, you know, really leading the way to, to be working with government to get ambitious climate policies because it's damn hard. I was in government and trying to get a carbon price, which we did across the board. Um, we were able to do it because we had a we had a um, carbon pricing leadership coalition, which was what I called it. And we ended up having, we started off with two banks and then all five banks had to be in. They all had to support it. Uh, we had manufacturing companies, we had consumer goods companies and we had one oil and gas company. And that, as you know, Chris, makes a difference when you actually have business saying, this is good for business, this provides certainty, this creates the right incentive for us to innovate. Um, so that's the, that's the plan. The plan is to provide, net zero can either be terrible because everyone's talking about 2050. And as my son, my youngest child says, they're all going to be dead by then anyway. Like, and that's hopefully not true, but they'll still be alive in 2050. But the reality is our incentives that far out are very hard. It's really about providing the incentives for people to do the work now and call out the greenwashers, but to support the high ambition uh, corporates and financial institutions, it's hard. No one's going to be perfect, but we need to see leaders and we need to celebrate leadership for folks who are actually doing the work uh, to get to net zero. Well, that's a pretty comprehensive overview of, of, of what you've done in the report. And I know you're sort of planning a high ambition uh, roundtable with the financial sector in London. I think that's taking place uh, tomorrow. It'd be you know, great to hear about sort of you know, where you think now you can take the report and how to deliver it. I sort of find this myself with the Mission Zero report and the Net Zero Review, we picked up on a number of uh, same sort of topics that you did around financial disclosure. I think we called for a, a Net Zero charter mark, as, because I think the challenge you mentioned regulation is, is who holds the reins here? Is it going to be national governments? Is it going to be the work that Rachel Kite sort of taken forwards around you know, how we can establish a regulated market around sort of carbon? Uh, markets for the future. I mean, that was something in our the Mission Zero report was looking at net zero and the future and how we can be sort of agile around this. I think one of the things I hadn't heard, I and mean, probably everyone's going to sort of say, oh, I can't believe you didn't hear this, was sort of this word green hushing. And that was a first for me when I sort of went round with the net zero review and held like the 50 round tables. Yeah, there was enormous enthusiasm to act, but also this sort of sense of like, not sure which foot to put in front of the other and you know and are we going to end up being castigated for taking the wrong action inadvertently if we don't have the uh framework in place that we know what we need to do now and how to do it and i think you know, your report really sort of sets out the, you know the, the framework but who do you think should lead this Is, you, how, how can we make sure that companies feel comfortable that they're not going to have you know, be taken to task in, in 10 years time for taking some of the wrong actions uh, by, by default? Well, I mean, first of all, no one's going to be perfect in this space. So my analogy is I, I used to be a competitive swimmer. I still love swimming. Um, but, uh, you know, you'd have a long term goal. It's a stretch goal. 
right? You're not going to get it in a day one. You're going to have to work really hard day in and day out. It's not very glamorous. Sometimes you're going to suck and it's going to be hard. You're going to get demoralized and other days you're going to make great progress. Um, but the, the deal is in a few years, uh, you want to be achieving your goal. And I think that's what this is really about. No one is going to be perfect. So we do have to be careful. And by we, I mean, all of the, all of us who care about climate action to not be, you know, slamming folks because they're not perfect. I think really calling out folks who are engaging in greenwashing is really important, but we do need to create the space for folks that are doing the work and trying to figure this out, um, hopefully as fast as they can. Um, we need to, you know, to recognize leadership in this space. I think this idea of a, a a uh, net zero mark or something like you can have you can have sticks and certainly there are sticks so for folks out there um you know whether you're even saying you're net zero or not if you're a publicly traded company you know you're at real risk if you're not taking climate action forget about if you're greenwashing you're you know the, the folks are paying attention now and so you can end up there can be litigation against you um there can be action with the competition uh bureau um you know there's a whole range of different ways you're, there's going to be some discipline um, but we do need to reward people who are doing well. And so maybe if there's some way you can distinguish, because I think we need to distinguish between the groups. Like on one hand, you know, the people are doing nothing or uh, worst case, they're actually going in the wrong direction. And then there are folks who are working hard. Now, how do you have true accountability? So we talked about this because, I mean, we wrestled this a bit in our report. I mean, the UN is not a, a global, you know, overseeing body that can enforce um, things. And in a way, the greatest power of the Secretary General is his voice. He's been very, very clear uh, about the need for far more action, about the need to call out greenwashing. But I mean, there are bodies. So a lot of folks that have signed up for net zero are part of different initiatives, um, whether it's raised to zero or of targets through the science-based target initiative. Um, or part of GFANS. There have been some challenges with GFANS with the members um, actually stepping up. So I think those bodies that actually, you know, have members need to make sure the members are living up to the requirements. Um, that's important. Um, if they aren't, then there should be consequences. There always has to be consequences. I say to my kids, like, I don't know, there are consequences. If you don't do, do what you're supposed to be doing, well, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> that's the way it is. Um, but I, I think ultimately, um, well, there's steps in between. I think radical transparency is really important. That's actually how the market works. As we think about it, you need transparency. And so I think that, you know, the disclosure piece we've seen the ISSB, there are definitely standards coming out and folks will be required to report. And if you look at Mark Carney, um, another Canadian, uh, when he started his work on disclosures, so the task force for climate related financial disclosures, you know, people, I remember sitting there and people were like, I don't know what he's talking about. This isn't going to go anywhere. And now it's actually being regulated. So I think it's going to take some time. But ultimately, we need national governments or, for example, the EU, who has moved into this, who's, who is going to regulate, to actually step up and regulate in this space. Because otherwise, I mean, there's a limit to voluntary bodies. There's a limit to voluntary pledges. Now, in good news, um, uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, with President Macron, uh, and now a whole host of folks are working on um, a net zero data portal or utility. I can't remember they called it. They always have less sexy names. Maybe they should be something a little more exciting. But what they're going to do is, um, is they're going to actually highlight companies and where they're at. So, but basic information, because I think we need to start and not make it too complicated. What's your baseline? What are your emissions now? 
How are your mission going? Are they going up and down every year? Where's your money going? Is it to going to dirty or is it going to clean? Um, do you have a transition plan, like a real transition plan? I think if we started off with that and there was you had comparable data, that would make a big difference. They're going to do that in, in conjunction um, with the UNFCCC. But I think that's going to be important. Why? Because in the absence of regulation, um, you have people. And this is what I get excited about because people now care. Why would you, if you're a publicly traded company, put up your hand and say you're going to be net zero? Especially if you're not doing it. Why would you do that? Because you feel public pressure to do it. Because remember, it's voluntary. So you don't have to do it. And so the reality is the public is getting a lot savvier. And so being able to see, go to a website where you can see how companies are doing, that'll have a real impact because one, if you're a consumer and you care about the climate, you can see, oh, okay, how are these folks doing? Are they actually really doing what they say they're doing? And you can you know, be able to do that. If you're um, an investor, and by investor, I mean like big investors, like I, you're investing in these companies or you're just a, you're a shareholder. You can decide where to park your money, your bank, who are you gonna bank with? You can see who's doing the best job um, in the banking sector. Um, if you're a, a, often young people, but an employee, you can go see who would you like to work for? Like who is really doing the work? If you're a pensioner, you can put pressure on your pension fund and say, heck, I don't want my money or you're an employee, I don't want my money to go fund, say, new fossil fuel infrastructure. So I think there's like a spectrum that will get us there, um, but it's gonna be messy. Everyone in the climate space, well, often people in the climate space want it to be perfect. Uh, you and I were both in government, Chris. Um, it's messy, right? Like it's not gonna be perfect. Everything isn't gonna be done properly. You're gonna have to recalibrate. But what we do need is we need to be focused on the science. And I think that's the most critical because while there is some progress, we are not nowhere near what we where we need to be. And we need to reduce emissions by half by 2030. So a lot of people are talking about technological innovation. That's great. But emissions need to go down by half globally by 2030. So there is no time. There is no magic bullet. You're just going to have to every day, one foot in front of the other, and everyone's going to have to really dig deep. And I mean, ultimately, as I say, Everyone needs to be part of it, which is why you need to regulate. But I have a question for you because I talked a lot about my report and um, you know what what we've said as an expert group. But I mean, you're in a government, and I think well, you aren't anymore, but you were, and you you know you've done your your net zero report, which I really think was great because in a way you framed it like how do you achieve net zero while also having positive benefits. Um, which is like jobs, growing your economy. And you talk about it in that space, but maybe why don't you talk to folks? Um, probably we have a lot of a lot of people here from the UK and but also beyond. Like what what did you find in terms of government and what does government need to do? And what's the business case for doing this? So yeah, I think you know you're right that when I got the opportunity to, to do the, re the review, uh, you might remember it was the previous. Prime Minister Liz Truss, I think it lasted about six weeks. No, I was Obviously. like, which previous Prime Minister? Sometimes it's confusing yeah. if you're Canadian. We're just like, I'm just like, wait a minute, what happened? What happened? I, I mean, I think probably the, the, the net zero review is the one thing that probably actually came out of the Trust government that actually is here to, to stay. Uh, I have to say like a rare Edward the, the Eighth coin, you know, the sort of the king in 1936. And um, basically, 
I had I, the, the review came out of the politics, if I'm honest with you. So I set up this net zero support group. I could see, and it's interesting, we've been talking about sort of the groups of individuals who want to see climate action. It's how you also take everyone with you and those people who might be skeptical about climate progress and, and they see net zero. I'm increasing culture war and net, you know, seeing this as some kind of woke project. You know, I'm a center right politician. I, when I signed net zero into law, I saw it as a uh, the bare minimum we could do that would also allow for economic growth. And I understand some people say net zero isn't going too far, too fast. And I totally agree with you. Net zero isn't just about 2050. It's about 2030. And if we don't, as the UK meet our NDC, 68% emissions reduction, everything starts to unwind because why would other countries then, you know, meet yeah. their NDC? So I always think net zero is 2030, you know, rather than 2050. So I totally agree with you. There, but partly the, the review was to, I was asked, how do you achieve net zero in an affordable, efficient way, one that's pro-business, pro-growth? And uh, I've always felt that you know, there was an enormous opportunity for net zero to be seen as an economic growth tool, uh, as you know, as well as obviously critical for tackling the climate crisis. But I wanted to meet head on a sort of a, a, that sort of right sort of challenge that net zero is going to make us poorer and colder, which is a total load of rubbish. And I needed to be able to set out this narrative that it is an economic opportunity, if we so wish. And then obviously, since having done the, you know, we were halfway through the report when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And I think we've really seen this acceleration now that, you know, we've got other countries, US, Germany, EU, uh, you know, elsewhere around the country now, sort of around the world saying, Actually, these are investable propositions, and and we want to place you know our, the future of our economy will be a green economy. So so I was really keen to try to tackle that sort of that sense of, of uh, skepticism. Uh, and the interesting thing, you're absolutely right. The science, no one now, I think, really, unless they're absolutely you know completely off off beam, would say there's not you know climate change is happening. But the same people who were sort of saying, oh, it's you know there's no problem. Uh, are now saying, oh, well, are we going too far, too fast? Do we really need to not you know, get rid of petrol? That's the new form of greenwashing, where exactly. you're like, oh, oh, I believe in climate change, but we shouldn't be doing anything. Or there's a solutions going to come like in 2035 or 40. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that was for the review demonstrating if you want to do net, if you want to do this in an affordable and efficient way, you, you've got to get on with the job now. That's the only way you're going to cut cut the cost of capital, you know, build up the supply yeah. chains. You know, actually, that the the investment if the investment doesn't come now, a ten year delay will add on well over twenty base points uh, to our debt GDP ratio. And trying to demonstrate that we are you know, not just that there's a moment of opportunity here. I think we said in the review about a trillion pounds worth of inward investment potentially to flow into this country by 2030, 480,000 new new jobs. Uh, I didn't just call them green jobs, but I think the, the, the challenge here is it's, it's actually uh, going to benefit the whole of the economy rather than putting the sort of, you know, the green you know, economy on, on a separate, uh, on a pedestal. Um, but otherwise, you know, this sense of a crisis that will only continue to worsen. And, and there's no prize for following. I think the thing is, is that we're only going to end up uh, you know, finding that other countries would have taken our workforces, that have taken companies. I think this is already happening. And I, we've got the government hopefully going to respond to the net zero review now. I think Grant Shapps, the business, you know, the energy secretary, said end of the month. Our last day of Parliament's the 30th of March. And, and then put the in your calendar, is, folks, put in your calendar. Yeah, yeah. And, waiting to see. And, and the good thing, obviously, with the UK, I think it's not the case in Canada at the moment. But, 
you know, this is a, the, our net zero commitment is in legislation. So the government was taken to the high court by client earth uh, and their net zero strategy. You know, I had nothing to do with it. I was out of government by this time. I would have done a far more detailed job. Uh, have, uh, have It's actually been found to be legally deficient. So the, the, the net zero review provides the government with a blueprint if they so wish to take it uh, on how to achieve net zero. Uh, and so that's been my sort of um, you know, contribution into government. And I'll wait to see uh, whether they take it up. Um, but it's been an independent review. Uh, you know, although I am a you know, conservative MP, I don't want this to be seen as, you know. Did you, show, uh, did you just show us your blue tie? To yeah, yeah. Oh, is that a thing that you have to wear a well, blue tie? You don't, have, you, know, you don't have to, but sort of, I don't know. I got you hear just like so every day, it's a lot easier if I put my blue tie I'm on. Really yeah, I'm I remind tired, myself but... I'm a conservative. Some days it might be hard, but. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, I I didn't vote with the government like earlier this week on the ref on the, the migration bill, but um, so I'm on, I'm on the oh, north side. Like, we could talk um, a lot about that. We won't. Well, I nearly became an independent MP. I nearly lost the whip during the, the, the Mission Zero Coalition because uh, I, I didn't vote on the government on a confidence vote, which obviously is sort of... Oh, that's really like serious. very not cool. I, I, I like when they say the whip comes down. A lot of my friends, the whip came down and they were out or something. I didn't really understand. You have very weird language here. But yeah, three-line whips. Maury Stewart, for example, didn't he or Claire Perry or maybe Amber Rudd? I don't know. I can go through a bunch of people that uh are no longer there something about the whip i gotta study up on this i don't know yeah you get the whip removed from yourself as well so matt hancock got the whip removed for going on i'm a celebrity and he's not got it back um but i haven't had the whip removed the whip removed okay yeah, i know yeah. you're a historian so what the hell get whip removed it just sounds very weird but we don't well, have I mean, I think, we carried on a lot of your traditions yeah, yeah well it's, it's it, I mean, to be honest with you, it's what you know. You're thinking about the the, the process. It, it it's not too different from providing the the the, the structure to make sure everyone marches in line. Um, yeah, no, no, no. Like... I understand the concept. We still in Canada, they do like you marching in line if you're with a party. We just don't have the whip thing. But I mean, it's interesting because it is hard sometimes, right? Because the politics and what needs to be done sometimes clash. Yeah. Um, and if you're in a party, uh, sometimes you know you're being told you got to do things and you know you may that's a good thing about being out of politics is everyone said unleashed i mean i think yeah. i was probably within the party and within certainly cabinet i think no one thought that i didn't speak up but the reality is i mean you are a part of a team and you know you got to focus on on uh, the end game but so i mean it's interesting like what's the best business case so for folks like you're wondering they're like oh nasty are such a drag like, what do you say to people who are like, well, I'm not really sure. Yeah, we should do this. I mean, you can talk about risk, obviously risk. And everyone has to remember how much we are paying right now. Everyone is paying, in particular, if you live in, say, Pakistan um, or, or uh, Bangladesh or places or, you know, the, the Horn of Africa right now, massive drought. But I mean, everyone's paying the price. In Canada, we had a town, a Lytton. Uh, BC, which actually literally, uh, it had a, um, what did we call it, like a heat dome over it, and it literally incinerated. So that's like, we're a wealthy country, and and that's happening. So, I mean, there's the risk, but what's the opportunity? Like, what's your best, what's your soundbite for to folks that are like, hmm, I don't know about this? Well, I think the, 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 the overarching you know, principle is... You know, I can't remember which song lyric it comes from. You've got to, yeah, you've got to change to say the same, haven't you? And and reality nice. is, is, is the transition is just like any other transition uh, in history. 
So you, the fact, I mean, we've just seen, again, I want to go back to, but you know, we've just lost, Ford have moved their electric vehicle plant, you know, they're going to move back to, to, to America. Why? Because we didn't get our act together and build out a gigafactory. And you, if you don't yeah. take those actions in time, then you find that you are following and and there's no prizes for coming second or well you know, you know silver gold medal you know bronze medal whatever but you know ultimately everyone lose you, you jobs so i mean yeah. second place is losing jobs and yeah. economic growth and you know we lost out to the danes in offshore winds in the uk yeah we lost out to the french in nuclear there's been so many historic examples where the uk has led and then just you know, up sticks and not made the follow through investment, which has been catastrophic for building out future workforces. Um, you know, when you look at electricity, we, we could have left that led there in the late 19th century. There are 14 different types of plugs around the world. There's just one example historically of the transition, because if you look at it, you know, why we got 240 volts running through our plugs, it's because America decided to then take the advantage and electrify before the, U the UK, the cost of copper went up. And we had to put the you know, enhanced voltage through the plugs to basically cope with the I less copper. I did not copper. know that. Yeah, that's yeah, why so, it's so weird. And I have to go find that other plug every time I go to a hotel. Yeah, I'm like, and, damn and it, I didn't bring it. But okay. Okay. The risk well, of let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act because yeah, yeah. that. Um, uh, one of our, well, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister's father, said it's like sleeping, uh, it's like uh, sleeping with an elephant, um, I think. Um, I may have gotten that wrong, but he, it's, um, I mean, look, they are all in, they, they have a very hard time regulating um, and everything gets litigated, um, but they are investing gazillion, bazillion dollars, um, both through the Inflation Reduction Act, um, but also the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So, I mean, certainly in Canada, I think everyone's staying tuned, is staying tuned for our budget. It's going to come out at the end of this month and we're going to see, okay, what's the reaction? Are we actually having an industrial green industrial strategy to compete with the U.S.? Now, we have a price on pollution and we have other pieces that create the right incentives um, for innovation and, and, you know, to really incent the private sector. But I mean, look, they're going to attract a lot of investment. Um, and be able to scale. But what's the, so what's the view in the UK looking at what the US is doing now? Well, I think it's a bit of a, a split picture, to be honest. There's sort of, there's been a couple of ministers who's come out and said, oh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act's gonna break World Trade Organization rules, you know, is protectionism. Uh, but the reality is with that sort of argument, you know, you can't sort of like just walk away from $369 billion worth of investment. And by the time it goes through the WTO, if it does at all, that money will be gone and we'll have missed out. You know, so, so I think sort of there, there are others who are thinking, well, where can the UK sort of fit in with this? Uh, you know, we can't match that level of investment, but maybe there are you know, international opportunities for us to look at where we can you know, find comparative advantage and I'm genuinely nervous, if I'm honest with you, I'm not even in government now, but I feel like sort of like that you know, there are two weeks, I think, to save Britain's climate leadership. Uh, I don't say that lightly, um, but basically the government's going to respond to the net zero review. It's going to you know, come back and, and, and the, they've said this is coming end of the month. Uh, and if they don't sort of if they take a, a knife to a gunfight, uh you know and produce you know what, what's all they going to put on the table because you know the eu i think are responding imminently uh with their own sort of inflation reduction act response uh so if it's, it's set up now and if the uk can't deliver a a response that matches the ambition of both the us and the eu 
that money's yeah the investment is quickly going to dissipate any any sort of you know companies who are thinking about locating here any uh, you know investment funds that are thinking of funding companies that are already here are already being sort of having their heads turned by the 45q tax credit but also that sense of stability and certainty continuity and clarity the four c's that i set out in the mission zero mission which is like just tell us what we're doing tell us the program set out a 10-year roadmap of delivery and and that's where you know the uk has had sort of project by project recently and we've just got to step up if we want to salvage you know, what's left uh, in this you know, limited time that we have so i was here yesterday um here and you know, i was in parliament and there was like the budget so the red book and it what so i mean i don't understand so you know in two weeks they're going to step up but normally if there are investments would they have been announced in the budget and what's your view of the budget in terms of what you have called for so i think it's been difficult for jeremy hunt obviously he's had sort of take over and, and create a sort of stabilization process and demonstrate that he's got his hand on the tiller uh and obviously you know the challenges you know same in canada the economic shocks of, of covid and elsewhere i mean that obviously you know taxation now is running high as a percentage of gdp to cover a number of these overheads you guys uh, also shocked your own economy if i remember one budget yes yeah and you know, not to bring out probably difficult no things, but right? yeah the the, the, the <laughs> challenge is is making sure and things are sort of you know correcting themselves but yeah, what is the investable? You know, what we are, where is the money going to be put for climate technologies specifically? Uh, and that's a question that the budget didn't properly answer because obviously it covered it covered like twenty billion pounds for CCUS, had a bit on nuclear, uh, nothing else. I think they're saving it all up for this. this oh, so moment. they could. So they might do off budget, like they might do other announcements, or you think you're expecting because yeah. they need to. You're going to be marking them. So yeah, and I think you that, are going to be waiting to see, are they actually stepping up to do what they said they do? But the challenge is going to be, obviously, that money's not, you know, now the budget's been set for this year, or at least yeah. for this, up until the autumn, then there's no technically potentially new money for the next six months. It's what, you know, it might be they'll say, well, we're going to set out now this long-term okay, objection and I make see. available money. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and that would be great to have that certainty. Um, I just can completed a piece of work on, on green regulation and where can we find regulatory opportunities to enhance inward investment yep. uh, for the future. But you- Carbon I, I neutral, carbon neutral, uh, sorry, revenue neutral uh, carbon price. Follow Canada's example. You well, give think... them money back, you create the incentive for, for business, for people uh, to you know choose different options, but you're giving the money back to people. So more people are better off actually in Canada's case, just free advice on the policy side. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the carbon price question is a you know, really important you know, issue and obviously reflects back into your report around you know, the opportunity of the voluntary carbon market and where you create proper integrity, but you can't really have proper integrity if there's like different sort of price mechanisms, you know, you can still yeah. go on websites and find someone offering you a $30 a ton of CO2 versus, you know, how is the one that actually is correct? Uh, well, so in Canada's case, it was everyone that made money on marijuana when we legalized it, or suddenly they're like, hey, I got an idea for you. I was like, okay, please, can you not call me? <laughs> because it's a free-for-all. Everyone's like, I know a farmer and yeah. some land and some like credit thingy. And um, yeah, well, so I guess that'll be the test with your with this report. I mean, in Canada, we have our budget coming out. And I think the real test is, is do people believe it? 
right? Like you can't do climate and have it kind of like an adjunct anymore. That's over. In a way, I almost think you should get rid of the minister responsible for climate. Maybe the minister for net zero makes sense, but the reality, everyone has to own it and especially finance. And like, you have to believe it. Like you actually have to believe that this is a huge economic opportunity because it'll drive behavioral change. If you're just doing like, oh, a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there. And then we're gonna keep on investing, you know, subsidizing oil and gas companies. And, you know, it's not gonna work. And so obviously that has to really believe, you have to believe one, it's a huge risk to your economy if you're not focused on this and making the right investments. And it's a huge opportunity and you could lose this race. and our case and yours to the United States and others who are really focused on it. Um, you know what, I think we're just as exciting um, as Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. Don't you think like the rest is politics? Like, you know, they've got to watch it. The, we've got a real podcast well, or something in our future because we're well, like straight talkers. I'm kind of more on the progressive left and you're kind of more like, you know, I don't know how you want to describe yourself, but like centrist, but you got your blue tie on. So like, I guess still a conservative. I don't know. I mean, I think the thing is, is when I, yeah, I, when I first came into politics, I mean, I know you joined politics, I think sort of with this as your passion already, I sort of joined and I, I didn't, I came to it late. I, I did some work on, you know, looking at nature and protecting the green belt and sort of countryside in my local area. But, you know, he'd asked me back in 2019 that this thing called net zero would have gone viral and yeah, that we will be where we are now. I simply wouldn't have believed you. But do you know, I didn't know what a cop was. So when I started, I had to go to the cop and I had to. So that was in 2015. And I literally got elected. I was named to cabinet and the prime minister was like, good news. You're going to the cop. And I was like, the cop. Now, it's not that I didn't know what the cop was. I.e., It was climate you know, people and people getting together. But I was like, what the hell does a cop stand for? And then someone told me, I asked my public servants. So I was like, no stupid questions, right? So then I said, what's a cop? And then they said a conference of parties. And I was like, okay, that is not descriptive and no more acronyms. So I was, I had worked on human rights. I had done antitrust and, and uh, trade law. And I, I mean, I cared about climate, but there were people who were experts. Like they had devoted, my friends who had devoted their life. So I actually came to you know, I, I mean, I knew about climate and I cared about climate change, but I was no expert. And I quickly realized, could everyone start talking like a normal person and like about things people care about? Because just talking about even net zero, it's I mean, I guess people are kind of getting with the program and net zero, but still, it's not very accessible language, net zero cops. Even when you talk about mitigation or you talk about like a whole range of things, people are like, I have no idea what anyone's talking about. And that doesn't foster confidence and it doesn't, you know, get, you know, people to be like, I'm all in. So, but, but it's amazing because you can learn this. Clearly you did your report. Yeah, yeah. Um, and hopefully all the people that are watching um, or listening and they all know about all the climate terms, they're all, they're all hardcore, all in. But it, it is that element of a narrative and, a, and, and communication that's so key to get cut through because when, I mean, People sort of say, oh, net zero is not going to win elections. But I, I would refute that. You know, once you yeah. break it down and sort of say, well, actually, this is going to make you warmer and richer. I mean, the, the, yeah, I know it's like in Canada, you know, energy efficiency. But we are the poor man in Europe. You know, we, we have not invested and we have got crap housing, really crap housing. Uh, yeah, with, with bad insulation. Let's say in Canada, we could have all, I mean, we could have net zero houses, um, but we don't even have the building code to be net zero. The, 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 it's set at the federal level. It's voluntary. The provinces um, implement it. 
But I mean, I was like, and they were like, we're working on it. I was like, I don't know, go take it from somewhere else. Like, what are we doing? So I think there is low hanging fruit um, for all of us to do. Yeah, um, it's that question of like, what, you know, what's the world you want to live in? And actually, when you look at the transition, you know, actually, all you're doing, I mean, it's also to sort of, you know, take net zero and not say it's a, a radical revolution, scare people, you know, people's boilers are going to need replacing let's not replace light with light let's just replace them with a heat pump you know let's totally. you know, replace someone's you know car you know, people get you know through their cars you know, every seven years or whatever so you're just going to a different just in the same way we replaced our you know tvs with flat screen tvs or we threw out our dvd collection and went for netflix this isn't necessarily a scary costly transition it doesn't need to be as long as we can provide the certainty and that's the thing also trying to get that across. I guess it's that challenge of how do you demonstrate how important this is for the future of the world and making sure that we show the stewardship that we want to keep the planet alive, but at the same time, not scaring people to death and thinking actually, you know, they one, they can't do anything because we can do something, but then also actually the, the, the measures that are needed to be taken forward that we can actually do now today, as you say, rather than wait for the technologies of tomorrow should happen anyway, if we, if we wish, to make that choice. No, and I think that's really important because I think we have to just be aware that regular people are busy. They're trying to get through their day. They care about climate change. As you say, there are very few that don't believe in climate change at all, sometimes on my Twitter feed, by the way. Um, but uh, it, you know, it's about saving money. It's about being more efficient. Um, it's about good jobs. It's about a, and a growing economy. Um, of course, it's also about managing risk, and we're all paying the price for climate change right now. But I do think it's really, really, really important, and I emphasize to everyone how you talk about it. Like, don't talk about how you want to talk about it. How are people going to hear, like, you know, regular people who want to act? How do we, you know, get them excited about this opportunity? How do we get them to think it's not a threat to their life? Uh, well, climate change is, but, you know, their way of life. Um, and really, you know, get people to enable them to make choices. And that's government's role in terms of, you know, electric vehicles. We've seen you need some incentives now. The price is going down. And who could have imagined that we would have so many choices in electric vehicle and, and, and you know, we're getting rid of the internal combustion engine. I mean, that's incredible. But as you say, I mean, you have to think about where are people at? And when you design policy, I've always said, policy, you need good policy, but good policy also thinks about people, which gets back to carbon pricing. As I say, we gave the money back to people. So, you know, more people were better off and it was a progressive policy because if you, you know, didn't have a lot of money, you probably were uh, using, relying on public transit. Uh, you didn't have a massive house. You didn't have multiple houses and multiple cars. So um, I think that that is something that government sometimes forgets um, that you can't talk down to people. You have to just, you know, enable action, but also talk about what people care about. And I think that jobs, obviously, you know, is critically important. Uh, you know, the cost of living, critically important. Um, and uh, I mean, I think there's really a lot of opportunity um, in that regard. Um, so is the politics possible? So sometimes people say the politics makes it impossible. Like, what do you think? Is it, is it too hard to make the case? Is that why, for example, in Canada, I'll be the first to say like, you know, the government continues to subsidize 
uh, the oil sands, um, which is hugely polluting, and they're they're actually making massive profits only as a result of a legal war, and then they're giving that money to to their you know, they're doing share buybacks and executive compensation. Um, people are paying more for their for fuels, and then the fossil fuel companies are demanding subsidies. Like, and then the government, you know, I hope they don't do it again, but have done it. I'm like, are we suckers? Like, why are we doing this? And it's for some reason there seems to be a disconnect on politics. Where in this one, I think you can just say no corporate welfare. Like that's a conservative idea. That should be a you know progressive idea. But what's the deal? Like why can't government? Why do all governments get tripped up? Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like. Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. So I think, I guess the challenge is is that you do have this sort of wave of reform, I guess, to what extent, you know, I voted against fracking. I, I don't see any future for fracking, but the previous generation of energy ministers to me saw sort of fracking potentially as an energy mix and gas. And I think there is a ratchet sort of happening. And I, you've seen this with Biden. Like if Biden hadn't done the Inflation Reduction Act, would he be under so much pressure with this sort of Alaskan oil field decision that this seems quite similar to the, the reaction that we're now getting in the UK about this you know, nuts idea about having a new coal mine in Cumbria in the north of England, you know, sort of once you begin to say, you know, it's all about, as you say, integrity matters on the front of your, your, your report. And and you know, people are now calling out the bullshitters, I think, when it comes to basically yeah. those who you know, say, this is what you want, and this is therefore, you, know, you can't simply square the circle with this. Uh, and and I, it'd be interesting to see where we go with future investment in, in oil and gas, because I saw BlackRock today sort of said, oh, they're still committing to future investments. But Surely this is going to be the last sort of castle to fall eventually, and that it, it, you know, it, it's not simply going to be possible. Uh, and as you say, people are beginning to now vote with their feet when it comes to elections. So I think you know, if you look in Australia, the you know, the, yeah. the, the Conservative Party got sort of taken out of power by the Teal Independents. And I think you know the, the election in 2024 in the UK, you know, climate will be an issue, and it will be an issue in the Red Wall, the so-called seats that the Conservatives won off Labour. Because people there recognise an opportunity when they see one, and they want those deindustrialized estates turned into you know, the companies, the industries of the future, and, and they recognise that the future you know, of steel is not like opening a coking coal plant; it's, it's making the UK a leader in, in green steel. So I honestly feel sometimes politicians. We want to beat you on that. See, it's competition. Okay. See, this yeah, is yeah. a competition. I'm well, from, I'm from is... Hamilton, which is the, the steel town. So this is the uh, net we, zero want, race. we want to have the greenest steel. Yeah, this is yeah, this is you know, as a conservative, I believe that competition brings forward oh, results. Totally. And uh, you know, this is where you know, in this net zero race that we've entered, uh, there are, as I said, no prizes are coming second. Yeah, and, and that's the risk we face if we don't take action now. I can see Elizabeth joined the I know the that call. means I that it's time to get questions, questions from the audience. Yeah, yeah. All right. 
It does. I, I could have just happily sat here listening to you, but there's also some awesome questions. There's a lot of questions. So I'm going to ask you um, to keep the answers relatively short so we can at least hear the questions, even if we don't get comprehensive answers. But I like the fact we were just getting into being competitive, Catherine. It reminded me that you were saying that you were com a competitive swimmer beforehand. So we've looped back to competition. Um, I'm going to ask the, um, I'm going to um, read out the first question from Isha Karg because it touches on um, what you were talking about just, just beforehand, but I'm going to, I'm going to, Isha, if you don't mind, I'm going to read your question. And I'm going to add something to it uh, because Isha says, do you think that the USA will be able to achieve their net zero targets of 2050 after the approval of the Willow project? And this is the, the approval of the um, drilling for oil in Alaska. But I want to loop that back to something you mentioned, Catherine, which is this idea that if we have transparency and companies sort of, you know, tell us what their net zero ambitions are, then shareholders and, and um, investors and, you know, the general public can make choices. But it seems like here, are we being driven by the choices of people who just want to make their short run profits from drilling in a, an approach that's not consistent with net zero and doesn't fit with your sort of red line of no new fossil infrastructure? Well, I mean, it doesn't fit in with the red line of new, no new fossil fuel infrastructure, which is really on the proponent um, as well as on the government. Now, look, this is where I got to the politics, right? I mean, let's be clear that I, I think a lot of folks, I mean, I know some of the indigenous peoples in Alaska were totally opposed. Um, but some people really wanted it. And this is where I think they're, this is why it gets hard for governments. But governments have to be a little more clear headed about it because there, so I see this in Canada. There's a confusion that fossil fuel companies' interest is the same interest as regular people because they talk about jobs. So just to be 100% clear, the interests of fossil fuel companies are one, to make as much money as possible, two, to uh, continue their life as long as possible. Um, three, to pay as little as possible for the pollution they cause, um, which is not the same as what regular people want. Regular people want jobs. They want jobs. That is like a real thing. And a government that doesn't think about jobs has a real problem. But they, they want good jobs, but they also want climate action, and they want economic growth, and they want investment in infrastructure in their communities. Those are not the same things, but sometimes it gets confused. So then governments are like, okay, I kind of, I really care about climate, but now I've got a lot of pressure here. So we're going to do that. So, but the challenge with that is that this can go on forever. We say we care about climate change, but everyone has to be held accountable. And I mean, the irony of that project, like I'm reading about it and they're literally talking, I think it's ConocoPhillips, they're literally talking about the need to have chillers because climate change is actually meaning that the that it's being built in an area where you know it's literally melting so they have to have chillers i was like this is where we are losing the plot folks we have to stop doing this because the folks that are actually causing climate change and we should be very clear like sometimes i think everyone's like we just planted trees or electric vehicles all these things are important retrofit buildings but the reality is that 80% of GHGs, close to 80% of GHGs, and 90% of CO2 comes from fossil, the burning of fossil fuels. So I think we just have to be a little bit disciplined. But, but this is the challenge with government, right? Like when you're in government, you're not always going to make the right choices. Um, in business, you often will be focused on the short term, although now you should be focused on risk in the short term and opportunity in the short term, and you have a fiduciary obligation. But what we need is an ambition loop. 
so that you have business saying, we have to do more government, we need these climate policies and not lobby against good climate policies. And then we need government creating an enabling environment, sometimes regulating, sometimes creating you know, financial incentives to actually get us going in the right direction. Because by the way, we're never gonna get there if we continue doing this where we're like, we're doing a little bit here, but then we're going backwards here. Like it doesn't work. The science isn't like literally, I, I, it's not, it's funny on climate, like when, when I'm out of government now, I'm like, oh my God, that was really weird because it's as if you're negotiating with the science. Science doesn't care. They don't care about your politics. They don't care. The science is the science and we are nowhere. Well, I mean, we've made progress, so I don't want to downplay the progress, but if everyone implements everything we you know committed to, I think we're at 2.4 degrees of warming. Now, 2.4 degrees of warming is catastrophic. <laughs> There's going to be catastrophic change, especially for the most, you know, the, the poorest people in, our, in the world, but it's going to be catastrophic for everyone. And we can actually do this. And this goes back to, I am competitive. You know what? we got a stretch goal. Every day we should work really hard and we try to like not say, oh, it's really hard and we whine. It's just like actually go forward. And sometimes it's going to be really hard. But if you have a long-term goal, you can remain focused. Um, and you can pick yourself up and, and then you make progress and then you feel good. And there are other people hopefully cheering you on. And that's what we need to, um, to get into. But I mean, I will say things like that are demoralizing like Willow. There are things like we're subsidizing the oil sands in Canada, a coal mine um, in, in Cumbria is what's happening. Like, I mean, there are all these things where you're like, okay, on the one hand, you're doing this, but on the other hand, you're doing this, which demonstrates you actually don't necessarily believe this is a huge economic opportunity and the way the world needs to go because you're doing something that demonstrates the opposite. Thanks. Um, no, that's great. And that wasn't short. So I am now going to be more disciplined. I'm still got the politician in me where you're just like, ah, blah, 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 blah. But it, it was a great answer though. So it was, it was worth spending and some time. Chris, poor Chris didn't even get to say a word. Chris, That's you're not allowed right. to answer this question. We will not get to the other one, so you'll have a chance. Yes, um, the next one. I've got a question from Bernard Casey, or if we're um, west of the Atlantic, Bernard Casey, I'm not sure which how to pronounce your name, but um, he says he wishes to know what and under what conditions pension funds can be contributing to financing a climate transition. He's particularly interested in the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, where there are substantial funded pensions. Should I start with this one? I mean, I'm Do not it. a Do huge it. expert. I, I, I've been doing a couple of round tables on the back of this green regulation work uh, to try to ask investors, you know, what would help unlock some of their investment. It was what I, I didn't frame this myself. It was the I was given this task as a co-chair. Um, but I've noticed sort of from some of the responses that, that there seems to be a shift that actually uh, pension firms, patient capital is not this year seeking to invest as much as they had done previously in climate sort of technologies, which is slightly sort of worrying. Uh, and it, it points to potentially the barriers being around actually the level of which you know, is seen as an accepted investment. So actually some of these pension companies aren't going to invest in a project unless it's 40 million quid, maybe 20 million pounds at the, the lowest. Where, that in itself is is not necessarily what's needed for some of these climate startups. So there's this sort of gulf, and we've got to be able to work out a way in which pension companies potentially can look and say, you know what, we're going to take a pooled group of companies, maybe yeah. by sector or maybe by by region. I think there's some really interesting examples of of investments that could happen in cities uh, or in clusters where 
you know, potentially let's create sort of investment fund propositions that pull a great, you know, a, a larger number of, of green technology uh, startups or companies uh, and let the pension funds then say, right, okay, we recognize this is a, an amount we can now release. But that seems to me like the number one barrier that I've sort of picked up is, is, is that they're not willing to make some of the small scale high risk investments and it's how you spread the risk at the same time well i think you spread the risk at the same time as having a portfolio but they need the portfolio created yeah. for them it seems so i mean i agree with that i mean they're gonna have to i mean it was easy when you could just do a massive project that was like a bridge or fossil fuel infrastructure um whereas these projects are often smaller scale but i think pooling is going to be really important but it's a huge opportunity because, it, you know, the pension funds, like a lot of them is so in Canada, teachers, teachers care about climate action. So in the good news, they're actually pushing the folks that are investing their money, because by the way, it doesn't belong to the pension fund, it's employees money, right? It's, it's the, you know, you should have a say on what's happening. And this is what I think is really important. It's these empowering people. Of course, we always say to people, you know, turn off the light, you know, use a water bottle, you know, buy an electric vehicle. But we also need to scale. And by scale, you know, that's like big money that we need. And it has to stop funding dirty. It has to move to clean. And I think pension funds, there's a real opportunity because that's someone else's money and you get to say where your money goes. So I've actually spent a lot of time talking to Canadian pension funds and trying to understand this. Of course, it depends who's, you know, who, who are, you know, who, whose money you're investing. But, you know, public servants, teachers, often, if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, we don't really, we don't want it to be funding new fossil fuel infrastructure. So I think that's really the opportunity. But once again, it's everyone having the disclosure, right? Like people need to know what is happening. And sometimes it's extremely hard to know. Like you've got an ESG fund. What is even, where is it even going? And so the public is trying to figure this out. So radical transparency in this. Um, where you can actually vote with your dollars, I think is super important. Thanks. Yeah, I think, um, can't disagree. Uh, we've got two slightly related questions from two students. So I'm gonna put those two together. Um, the first is from Tushar Neja, uh, a fourth year politics student at the University of Edinburgh. Um, you had two questions, so I'm just gonna ask one of them. And you said, um, what are some of the ways in which governments around the world can more effectively resist pressure from fossil fuel lobbyists and petrostates? And Tushar is reminding us that in COP27, there were more delegates from the fossil fuel industry than delegates from environmental organizations. And then we have a question, um, and I'm, this is from a student, uh, Marie-Denise Bain. She's an LSE student and she's from Montreal, Canada. So um, a, a double thumbs up there. Bonjour, and, bonjour. <laughs> and her question is, um, what do you think about the recent Glasgow Climate Pact's commitment to phase down coal-fired power station rather than phase out and the importance of that one word? So it's all about the fossil fuels, COP, and the importance of words. Well, okay, I'll take a stab at this because I have strong views on this. Um, we are stop lobbying. And like sometimes people are focused, like, did someone get a free dinner? That's not the that's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about access, access to ministers, access to senior public servants by fossil fuel companies and others. Like, just why do people who have lots of money get more access? Because it, let me tell you, like they will tell you their side of the story. And in a way, it's just human psychology. You hear that and you're like, okay, well, we are not going to go quite as far as they want, but we'll go halfway. I, I think that's really got to end. Um, and once again, 
almost all of these companies say they're uh, they're committed to net zero. So the report is very, very clear. You cannot lobby against climate action. You can't. I mean, you can say this policy, like on carbon pricing, you need to take account this or this. You cannot say, forget it. We don't want to have this policy or that policy. So I mean, I think that's number one. Um, number two, I mean, in a way, it's not that hard for government. I, I find it kind of weird. So whether you're a liberal or a conservative, liberal, I mean like a Canadian liberal, or let's just say a progressive or a conservative, you should believe that it should not be free to pollute and that polluters should pay. Like, I think if I asked most people, they would say, yeah, polluters should pay. Well, then why are we paying to clean up the pollution? Like, why is it that we're privatizing profits and socializing the costs? That doesn't make any sense. And, and to be honest, the fossil fuel companies are doing a terrible job. Once again, like we actually today in Canada, um, the, the um, uh, Greenpeace, as well as the Canadian Association for, of Physicians for the Environment, Ecojustice and others, have filed a misleading advertising case against the Pathways Alliance of Oil Sands Companies on the basis that they are not net zero aligned. Their emissions are going up. Their money is not going at scale to clean. It's going to dirty. Um, they're lobbying against climate action. And so it's actually easy in a way to say, like, what the heck? You're not even investing your own money. And then you're demanding money from um, uh, you're demanding money from people because it's not the government's money, by the way. It's taxpayer money. It's like everyone's dollars. I mean, look, I, I understand the argument that fossil fuel companies, well, they should be energy companies, by the way, and that doesn't mean just oil and gas, that means actually moving to like energy, energy is kill, whatever kilojoules, like it's just actually, it can, you know, we have renewables that have gone down and are cheaper. Um, so I, I, I mean, we have to engage with them, but they do need to be called out and held accountable. And that's just life. Like, I don't know, you know, this is the, the major cause of climate change. I worry about cops. Like COP, and, and in a way, that's not even necessarily where all the action is at. COP, COP 21 was really important. So that was in 2015. I was very fortunate, just new minister there. Um, and we got an ambitious agreement with a temperature goal, 1.5 degrees, well, uh, below two, striving for 1.5. And that was critically important. We needed to get rules around the Paris Agreement. But now the action needs to happen, like governments need to act, business needs to act, and we need to move forward. I'm not entirely sure that where we're going now with everything focuses on a COP, everyone goes to the COP, a whole agenda is around a COP. Not entirely sure that's what we need. It's not the COPs themselves are terrible, although, I mean, having more oil and gas lobbyists than uh, climate activists is like completely unconscionable. As people have said, you're not gonna have an anti, you're not gonna have a conference you know, about cancer and invite the tobacco companies. So just saying, um, but I mean, I think we, we, we need to like, just be a little more focused on outcomes. And I wonder about, you know, cops, are we just spending a lot of time talking as opposed to everyone just every day doing the work? Chris, do you wanna add something? Yeah, I think on the cops, I mean, they are long overdue. And I know Simon Steele wants to look at reforming the cop process as as if he could. Yeah, I guess the challenge is, is we unpick something in this multilateral process, these 40 different negotiation streams. I think I understand. I, I think I asked someone in Alex's team, like, yeah, why did that come? You know, what phasing out became phasing down? They just said, well, you know, it was so late in the day, they basically refused to allow it. The, everything else would have collapsed, sort of the whole negotiating. And that's clearly an, a, a huge issue around 
how can you ensure that there can still be, maintain agreement on everything else? Why does everything come down to that single word, even if there's separate work streams that could have been agreed? Why can't we sort of have a negotiating process that singles out the, you know, the ability that nothing is either you know, it's all or nothing? That's clearly a farce. I think that the challenge also with COPs is that you know, we come back to this jamboree every single year. There's actually a sort of project now to create an alternative recop I see that sort of is being created uh, by like, like Chad Frischman and yeah, they, they want to set something up because partly through the, the issue around fossil fuel lobbying. Uh, and the, the, the challenge to me is how do you, you know, and I see Guterres wants to set up this high ambition meeting outside of the COP, which in itself was like, well, if he's thinking that, then surely we've got, it's overdue for COPs to be you know, looked at and, and revised. But uh, yeah, taking forward the net zero view, it's also fantastic examples of best practice. Yeah, whether that was local engagement in cities, community energy projects, industrial decarbonization, startups that are demonstrating how we can you know, use nature-based solutions. Why can't we be a, you know, a bit more positive and say, well, everyone, every year, a country, rather than coming back and saying, you know, what they have or haven't done, why don't they come with solutions each yeah. year and, and actually say, look, everyone, this is what we've got. And, you know, the COPs I've been to, it's been far more engaging around the, on the margins where people have come together and shown positive examples. And, and I think we need to have that sense of, uh, and also I think there's this sense of, uh, uh, I think ever since Copenhagen, a sort of sense that these things are now too big to fail. Uh, and that in itself creates this stifling of innovation because you do need to take risks sometimes. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Paris took a risk on 1.5 degrees instead of two degrees. And that led to net zero on the back of the IPCC 2018 report. And so you, I think we, we've got to find a way in which people aren't going to sort of gum up and sort of like think that they can't sort of you know, progress beyond the sort of structures of Paris. You know, the real challenge, Paris is such a breakthrough, but it potentially becomes a prison. If we look now at you know, what's happening and if, if climate continue, the warming scenarios continue to accelerate in the way they are, we're going to have to take further action. And it needs to be multilateral action you know, if, if, if that's going to you know, mean that we're going to be able to tackle some of the challenges that we seem to be facing. You know, it's a different world to 2015. And, and I think yep. we also need to you know, understand that as well. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's always always difficult to talk about cops. They're sort of essential, but um, they're so frustrating. Uh, maybe they're not essential anymore. Um, so th there's a few questions about greenwashing. So what I'm going to do is um, read a few questions and comments for you guys. I don't expect answers to all of them, but I think it's actually really nice for us to hear the sort of comments and questions that are coming. So th there's a question specifically to you, Catherine, um, from John Holland in Glasgow University. And, and, and um, John is saying, um, could you imagine constructing a greenwash index based on the tell elements of your colleagues' ideas of net zero? And would this actually be sounder than the current ESG ratings? And I just want to then just add a few comments from people that are quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Shashank uh, Nigam, who's um, a former member of your ward in Ottawa Centre, um, asks, brings up the point you made quite early on, actually, about EasyJet stopping its um, offsetting, but saying, look, there's barely any sustainable aircraft fuel in their aircraft. There's no hydrogen or electric craft that are flying. So isn't offsetting in the meantime the correct option? And then there's just a couple of, um, I just want to find these questions. I've, I've scribbled down whose names I'm looking for. Um, and then Mark Falcon says, well, what about government greenwashing? Um, so should we be calling EVs zero emissions, given that they have embodied carbon um, 
sometimes people are using non-green electricity and of course there's particulate pollution from, I'm adding this tires and brakes. So Mark, I was just adding, I've seen that's the particulate pollution you're talking about. And then just one other comment um, from Tim, who says, um, you know, what would it take for Canada to drastically cut its oil sands output? You know, so this is a highly polluting industry in Canada. So I think the question is about, you know, do we need a greenwashing <laughs> index? But there was just quite a lot of people really- There's, a, there's a lot, there's a lot there. So, okay. There is. Um, so look, I'm not an ESG expert, but I am, I feel like now kind of an expert on net zero. The good news is it's measurable in a easy to understand way. It may be hard to do, um, and people may groan and say, well, why did you say no new fossil fuel infrastructure, for example, but it's actually measurable. And that's what's very good about this, because like climate is the thing. I mean, of course, other things are the thing and an underlying climate is inequality or, you know, fostering equality or making investments, you know, to ensure that everyone's succeeding. But your emissions need to go down right now. Um, and you need to invest at scale and clean. So in a way you can do that. So I think, you know, it, it's easier to measure in a very transparent way. Um, we, we, that's the work is going on to do that. So I think that's helpful because, and, and what our report really was intended to do. So as I see, said in Canada right now, there's a case that's been a, a, um, a filing that's been made with the competition bureau saying that the Pathways Alliance is not, they're greenwashing. And they, you know, it's because their emissions are going up, they're not going down. The money is not being invested in clean. It's going, you know, the focus is on new fossil fuel infrastructure, lobbying against climate action, not covering all the emissions, just emissions intensity um, rather than, and no skip there. So, okay, so that's good because you can actually like, you can actually say in an objective way, this is what's required. So I think it is hopefully helpful. That's part of the report. I was like, let's be practical here. Um, Cause that will also help good business. Cause it's not, everyone's not greenwashing. Some people are actually working really hard and it's hard. Um, okay, so let's take areas that's so hard to decarbonize sectors. By the way, that's not oil and gas. I wanna be 100% clear about that. That's not a hard to decarbonize sector. We have renewables. But if you're talking about cement, steel, aluminum, air, aviation, those are hard to decarbonize. But now I'm gonna sound really nerdy, but I think this is important. We need everyone to have a net zero pathway. So that doesn't mean you're gonna immediately be net zero, but you've got a pathway for your sector about what you can do. So say you're in you're in a hard to decarbonize sector, you still need to do what you can do now, right? Like you shouldn't be able to buy credits for that piece because we want you to do that. We want you to scale innovation and help other industries. We did say in our report, assuming credits with integrity, which is hard and other people are working on that, we can solve absolutely everything with this report, that you should do more. You should compensate for those emissions that you cannot reduce now. So I don't know, that's a bit nerdy. Go read the report if you don't understand that. Um, sometimes it's hard to explain these in sound bites. Government greenwashing, 100%. Although we talked about different things, like there was something about EVs. I hear this sometimes. I hear like, oh, wind farms like are killing birds and nuclear is, you know, there's problems. With and by the way, it is very expensive and bearing waste is very hard, but it is zero emitting. I'm, I, so there's government greenwashing, 100%, that needs to be called out. But we also have to be quite realistic about what we're doing. We can't say everything is terrible, especially if it's reducing emissions. Like my view, and I get that is people have issues with nuclear, including environmentalists, and those are real issues. But we have to separate like emissions coming down back to my like emissions need to come down. 
you know, in, in, in Germany, they were taking nuclear offline and doing the majority of school. Like that is not that, I mean, it depends what you're trying to measure, but I mean, I think if you're trying to tackle climate change, we have to be slightly careful that, you know, we're not saying, well, EVs, there are problems because of the, like, we do some solutions. Are they perfect? No, but it's like all hands on deck now. And some people might not like it. I just say, call it as I see it. Um, and then oil sands output. Look, oil sands have said that oil and gas companies, they've committed to net zero. So let's just take it on face value that they mean that. They may not understand it. So they need to be reminded. They can't mislead people. They have to do things. So if they can reduce their emissions on a 1.5 degree pathway, go fill your boots. Um, and so that's why the government of Canada has said that they're not talking about reducing output, they're having a cap on emissions. So the, honestly, the oil sands should be amazing. That's what they've said. They said that they want their emissions to go down, great. So you should innovate and figure out how you're gonna reduce your emissions in line with 1.5 degrees. And so they should actually be pushing for a cap because it's gonna create the incentive for them to reduce emissions. Is that hard? Yes, but hard things are hard. And if you're gonna say you're gonna be committed to net zero, you, you need to do that. Whether or not that's going to happen or that is the oil sands are going to do that, totally different story. But by the way, um, you know, people are going to become dinosaurs. Remember VHS tapes or actually um, I used to do like little mixtapes. That's how old I am. Like I'd listen to the radio and I'd be like, that song I love makes me think of this boy or whatever. So I taped it. Yeah, you know what? I don't use tapes anymore. I can't, I don't even know where my tapes are. I was trying to find a tape. And every time I'd use a tape, it would come out and then you'd be like with a pencil. That is what's gonna happen to folks that do not innovate. They're gonna go like the dinosaurs. They're gonna become extinct. Um, maybe not fast enough. That's why we have to make sure that we're doing this. But you either get with the program or you get out. And honestly, like free advice, if I'm a fossil fuel company, I'm an energy company. I move. I move into the space. We didn't get out of the stone age because we ran out of stones. We got smarter. So yeah, let's all get smarter and actually tackle climate change. So I don't know. There was a lot of questions there. So who knows? I wish all the oil and gas. So that means like maybe I did an okay job. But Chris, you want to add, Chris? No, I mean, you've seen it. Like, you know, companies like Orsted, gave up their fossil fuel paths to set up in the wind farms and they've never looked back so you know it, it's been done i just say from the uk perspective obviously we've got the north sea uh big question about how we manage our transition you know even the ccc says we'll still be using 60 percent of oil and gas come 2050 on a net zero scenario but the industry themselves won't accept the balanced pathway so there's a tension and you know they're not doing enough uh they say they'll have 50 percent production emissions reduction you know, the CCC say it must be 68% by 2030. So there is that gulf. And, you know, the net zero review sort of recognizes that we, they've got to go further, you know, banning flaring. You know, Norway's had a, a flaring ban in place since 1972. Uh, why can't we do the same in, in the yeah. UK? Uh, particularly what we now know about methane in a way we didn't know, say, five years ago. Uh, and as you say, the, the producer should pay. Uh, and it's, it's a responsibility of government. We've got this windfall tax that's now gone on oil and gas companies uh, on the basis of their profits, but they're still allowing the capital allowances to be uh, basically writing off some of that tax against you know, um, refurbishing the rigs. Uh, and you know, we've got to be able to look at how the taxation system either works for or against the transition. Uh, if we're serious as a government about tackling net zero, and, and for me, you know, understanding that we look at where we could be, 
you know, if all these companies, BP, Shell, I don't know, sort of, you know, they want to be net zero companies, obviously uh, there's an inherent tension in that, but nevertheless, they shouldn't mind uh, yeah. being taxed, but why, why shouldn't that tax be hypothecated and put in a net zero fund that could not only help sort of fund abatement, but critically could then pay for net zero projects, you know, in the UK could cover a, a, a energy efficiency could, and, and that's where the government's not been willing to move. But I, I just feel, you know, we, we are not, you know, setting the frameworks, we're allowing, you know, that investment to, to continue to flow uh, without thinking about the conditionality and, you know, the fr French place condition, and this is what Mariana Mazzucato, I think sort of you know, has focused on really effectively. You know, aviation wasn't allowed to continue in COVID. It received the bailouts, but on the condition that it set yeah. itself, uh, you know, a greening pathway. Uh, and we need to be bolder uh, in in being innovative in our policy making, just as if we're being innovative in our technology making. One hundred percent agree with that. It's quite frustrating, isn't it? Because it's not rocket science. I mean, both of you, um, Catherine and Chris, have, have laid out very sensible policies. They're not hard to implement. Some are revenue neutral, so they're not costly. And yet still where the emissions are going in the wrong direction. There's well, there's at least three questions because questions seem to be coming in all the time. But um, quite reasonably, we've been focusing on high income countries because that's where the majority of the emissions are and that's where the responsibility lies. But there's at least three questions um, that do link to low and middle income countries. So, again, I'll just give you yeah. all three questions and then you can pick and choose. Philippa Parker, student from Cumbria, has said, um, is the expectation of net zero different for countries that are still developing? And then we have Virginia. Um, Virginia Julie, uh, a PhD student from the University of Reading. I used to work at Reading, so welcome, Virginia. Um, uh, saying sort of, you know, with, with, with the mind on um, temperature records being broken on a global scale, whether an acceleration of the rate of decarbonisation is possible for low and middle income countries as much as the rich ones. And Peter Splinter, you had a question. Ah, dang, I might be scrolling the wrong way. I'm trying to cluster these, but um, if you just give me five more seconds. Peter has a question. Um, yes, again, um, parallel, parallel set of challenges for development in large parts of the global south. Um, how do we create space for financial and technical assistance for low and middle income countries for both climate action and development? So shifting the focus onto low and middle income countries. So I think this is really important. And if you read our report, once again, only 10 recommendations. So go to it, go read it. Um, number nine, I believe, was the focus on um, the money that's required to go to less developed countries. Because the reality is $1 trillion for the energy transition or $3 trillion um, if you're going to meet the SDGs. So that's a lot of money. Um, and you can't say to less developed countries, I'm sorry, you can't have the same quality of life. You can't you know, turn on the lights um, because we've decided we're getting off fossil fuels and we've been polluting rich countries have been like doing a ton of pollution, but it's sorry, you're out of luck. So that money needs to flow. Part of that is, um, I mean, we now have a new head of the World Bank who's not you know, denying climate change. So that's always a positive thing. Hopefully he will focus on scaling money from the private sector too, there is a limit. We need governments for sure to step up. Uh, I think we invested $2.65 billion in Canada when I came in as minister and we announced a cop, but I mean, that's a drop in the bucket in terms of amount of money uh, we need. So we definitely need 
um, uh, we need developed countries to step up. I mean, we have been able to benefit um, because we polluted and we have been the large contributor to climate change. And it's interesting in Canada because people are like, Canada's emissions really small. So that's what we often get on the scale of climate denial often. And the reality is Canada is top 10 now. Um, per capita, we're very high. And historically, we're very high too. So the reality is we, we need to be contributing. Um, I, I also think, like, so, so in terms of net zero, it is true, it's global net zero. Now, I don't want to go down this whole path on differentiation, but the reality is that developed countries should be moving a lot faster than less developed countries. China aside, China needs to do more work. Um, I mean, in some ways it's doing good things, but it also needs to be part of that solution right now. Because, but, but we all need to be doing things because the reality is if we suddenly, everyone develops in the way developed countries have developed, we're screwed like that's that. And so we all need to be focused on how do we help each other? And by the way, the Paris Agreement is so important because it's the first time, and I want to take one second to recognize how important the Paris Agreement was because people can be like, everything sucks and we haven't done anything in climate, whatever. Actually, the Paris Agreement is critically important because the first time ever the whole world came together, not only with a temperature target, with a really clear goal, but everyone said they had to do their part. So I think that's what we all, we all need to remember. It doesn't matter where the pollution is, we're all gonna pay the price. And so we need to be helping each other and less developed countries absolutely need way more help. We need to do technology transfer. We should be working with them. I mean, we're trying with jet peas. Um, so uh, getting countries off coal there, it's tricky. But we need to be just focused on getting emissions down and also um, uh, you know, on resilience, on adaptation because we're all gonna to have to adapt and those that are most impacted are the least able to adapt to the impacts of climate change. This couple more minutes comments. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I would say that you know, when it comes to looking at those developing nations, those in the global South, trying to demonstrate you know, the get away from the narrative of the, you know, these are obviously historic emissions. There are going to be sort of loss and damage funds in, in place recognize the difficult sort of politics of this but there is an opportunity uh if we if we work carefully with these countries you know and there's a number of these you know just uh, energy transition partnerships that are they're in place south africa vietnam india uh, if we can demonstrate how they can enter the world stage afresh uh having sort of been leaders you know namibia is keen to look at how to utilize sort of green hydrogen and sort of the wind opportunities that they sort of have as well as solar you know, it, it, that positive narrative is really important and then i think also industrial decarbonization in in the global south you know i see on twitter sometimes people go, oh yeah that acid rain stuff that didn't turn out to be true and they just you know, totally oblivious of the the facts obviously the global north you know, regulated and solved the issue of sulfur dioxide in global emissions, but they just pushed it down south. Uh, and actually, tackling the climate crisis and reducing emissions also has like co-benefits of reducing industrial pollution, which saves lives. Yeah. And we shouldn't you know, forget the fact that actually, yes, it's a CO2 challenge, but there's so much also that can come with it at the same time as reducing CO2 uh, and emissions, you know, we can take all the nasties also out and make sure that people have the ability to lead safe and healthy lives in a way that they're not at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think we do need to do that. So Mariana Mazzucato, I was just I was just with her yesterday. 
and we were talking about this, I mean, every dollar should be spent to get multiple outcomes. Of course, climate action, but it should create jobs and growth and it should tackle inequality. And that's within your own country, but also globally. And that's how we need to be thoughtful about how we do things and not just say, sorry, you can't do it. Like, you're not going to grow. You're not going to get, you know, be able to turn your lights on. We should be figuring out how do we scale distributed solar like immediately? Because by the way, I often hear, well, oil and gas, we have to be careful because oil and gas companies, they're going to bring, you know, these communities. I was like, no one, no oil and gas company I've ever met is saying, wow, this poor community in Africa, I'd really like to go and get them on the grid. So the good news is we actually have other non-polluting solutions, but we need to be focused on, yeah, they need the same opportunities. It's not fair. And that is something that is on all of us, but we can do a lot better because we got out of the stone, didn't get out of the stone age because we ran on raw stones. We, we got smarter. So we have new solutions, which by the way, are cheaper. Um, so the good news is the economics are catching up, but sometimes governments don't care about things being cheaper, which is really weird because they should. Um, so we continue doing the same old, same old because it's a status quo because they're big interests um, and we got to fight that. We just have to actually, I think Chris and I, we're not exactly politically aligned, but I think we're aligned on being practical and being mindful of taxpayer dollars and on being ambitious on climate. And you can do all of that. Well, that's a great way to end. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to close the event. Oh, no. Sorry. Yep. But I'd just like to say, I think we've ended on such a positive note, reminding ourselves that there are tremendous co-benefits from climate change mitigation, especially for health, especially for quality. And there, and there, if we see, actually, it's a very positive and exciting pathway forward if we embrace net zero. Um, and as you mentioned, transition phase is tricky and it has to be managed well but I, I think hopefully we leave this one it's been a great evening so thank you and two um with a sense of positivity so i encourage everyone to read the 10 um points can i just thank before people disappear can i just thank so much um the events team and our colleagues who have been helping behind the scenes so our gri colleague alison peacock who um is is here with us now but you might not see us her our lse colleague um Nick, I can't see where you are, Nick, but um, thank you so much also for being a part of this. Um, Bob Ward's behind the scene there, yeah, Nicholas Berg, so thank you so much. But obviously, um, most thanks um, to this absolutely converse, uh, wonderful conversation between um, uh, Honorable Catherine McKenna, to be formal, and Right Honorable Chris Skidmore. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Chris. I've had a tremendous evening. I'm sure everyone has too. I'm sorry we couldn't ask, um, put all the questions um, to, to uh, Catherine and Chris, but they were great questions. So thank you so much, everyone, for participating. And I think with that, we can officially close the evening. And once again, thank you to everyone participating, LSE events, um, colleagues who've made this work, and Catherine and Chris for giving up your Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.